So um, I was down in the teacher village putting together this talk and I haven't ever done a talk on equanimity before. I'm going to talk about equanimity. And I got a little nervous, but then what arose was this idea that I will do my best and I will totally surrender to how it turns out. So what was that? (laughs) Equanimity arose. Actually, my sangha back in Seattle, we're doing the paramis. We're um, doing, you know, every month we're doing a different parami to just try to water those seeds. And I always take the paramis that I'm weakest at. And actually, I also do that for Dharma talks. (laughs) So I'll be able to really know more about it and point the finger at that moon for a little bit of guidance. So, um, equanimity. It has a lot of different places. It holds a pretty high level of importance in our Dhamma study. It's on a lot of different lists. So we can imagine that it's a very important quality to have. It's on the parami list. In fact, it's the last of the paramis, equanimity. And as a parami, it's thought to um, address or um, allow some ease with the vicissitudes of life. And the vicissitudes are praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, success and failure, or... Another way to say it is gain and loss. The Buddha said that the uninformed worldling, who are the uninformed worldlings? That's all our family and friends, no. (laughs) Those are our beloved community too, our uninformed worldlings, um, do not really understand how to hold uh, praise and blame or they don't know how to hold the vicissitudes. For example, they don't have insight into that um, all of these things that we have, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, they're changing all the time. You know, we are successful one day and don't get our grant the next day or our paper gets rejected or whatever your predominant experience of success and failure is. Or one day, you know, you get five emails to... uh, to join this group or to give this talk and then you don't get any more for six months. (laughs) You know, things are always changing. And it's not that that's a mistake. That's the nature of the world. So um, the fact that it's never perfect, you know, there's always a little bit of suffering in it. Even those things that we think are successful and pleasure and fame and praise... They don't, there's a little bit of, this doesn't totally satisfy me. Or we get satisfied for a small period of time and we're still craving something else. So it's never permanently satisfying. <clears throat> if we, uh, the un, uh, uninformed worldlings, for example, to get 
success and failure and gain and loss around money, maybe. <clears throat> the uninformed worldling might think, um, wow, this prosperity is so great. It's exactly what I need. I need more and more money. And they might think, this is mine. This belongs to me. You know, so they actually create an identity around it. I am the rich person right now that brings some sense of identity and clinging. <clears throat> In the Loka Dhamma Sutta, the Buddha said, Bhikkhus, the eight manifestations of worldly vicissitudes are always following all living beings, otherwise known as the world. And all beings are always following worldly vicissitudes. The Buddha uh, names the world as those eight, you know, op opposing forces in our life. <clears throat> the waves of emotion, for example, and how they work is the waves of emotion will lift us up and then they'll fling us down to the earth. And no sooner do we need rest, do we find a little bit of rest, a little bit of a respite from all of that, then the floods come. And I love, uh, I think another way of talking about the vicissitudes are the four floods. And the four floods are, the first flood is the flood of sensuality. And that could be, <clears throat> you know, anything that uh, brings sensual pleasure. You know, of course, we probably all go immediately to sex. But it's also food and you know, entertainment and just anything that is pleasant to the uh, ears or to the eyes or to the touch or to thoughts. The flood of sensuality. And the flood of sensuality after that is the flood of becoming. That's the one that I'm really working with right now, just to see, you know, uh, in one of the Buddha's highest teachings of the uh, dependent origination, you know, Every contact we have has a feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that feeling tone totally rules our world. You know, unconsciously, if it's pleasant, we're always running after it. And if it's unpleasant, we're always running away from it. And um, so the, how it goes is that we get contact, we feel pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that gives rise to tanha, one of those aversions or greed and tanha leads to upadana or clinging. You know, we don't see clearly what's happening in that moment. We don't realize the temporality of that vedana, of that feeling tone. And we cling to it. And that is where becoming happens. It's so interesting. That's where the self is made. And there's, you know, self's being made uh, continually through the day and night. It's interesting to try to look at that. In response to something that you contacted, who do you become in that moment, you know, just quickly after that? So that's the flood of becoming. The next one is so fascinating too, the flood of views. <clears throat> the Lakota, I'm um, so happy to be <clears throat> uh, on the faculty of Sitting Bull College. Uh, no, it's actually... Um, it's actually, yeah, it's Sitting Bull College on the um, Standing Rock Reservation, you know, where they had that wonderful um, protest a while ago. 
And um, actually, one of the leaders of the um, protest told me this incredibly deep thing. He said, all generalizations are a lie, which I thought was very, you know, true. I think the Buddha said it. You know, this isn't an exact quote, but he said something like, however you imagine things, they are always otherwise. And, you know, the flood of views is having one idea about something and just not being able to let it go. Not being able to let it go. So that's the flood of views. And all of those are carried forth by the flood of ignorance. Ignorance underlies all of that. Just not seeing clearly about uh, what's going on. And it said that uh, the only respite and security that we have against all of those worldly, um, you know, manifestations is equanimity. Is the island of equanimity. It's our refuge from all of those. Equanimity is our refuge. There are different forms of equanimity. Uh, one is equanimity as mental stability. It's, uh, if you have strong equanimity, it might look like samadhi, where you rest and you, know, you don't have that many thoughts come across. Just things are, I've experienced it almost as earth element. There's some solidity to the heart and mind and to, um, just the knowing principle, some type of solidity to it. And there's not a lot of thinking happening. Our thinking calms down, and uh, equanimity as samadhi gives rise to a sense of peace, just a sense of being present and collected without a lot of you know, tugging going on of wanting this and not wanting that. Another element of equanimity is as a Brahma Vihara. And, you know, that's what we're practicing this week. Uh, the Brahma Vihara of equanimity. And um, th- that is also um, mental stability, but it's mental sub- stability usually combined with the other Brahma Viharas, with uh, loving kindness and compassion and uh, sympathetic joy. Um, another uh, way of thinking about equanimity as a Brahma Vihara is, um, and I know Kamala and um, I think Sally teach this wonderful equanimity retreat. And I read some of the notes from there. And um, I saw this quote from Ledai Sayadaw, one of our Burmese grandfathers, who says that equanimity has an element of pa- patience to it to be able to see the bigger picture and to see with, with patience. I think the term that uh, Ledai Sayadaw uh, said was um, to see with quiet eyes, seeing with understanding. And we can feel when that happens when, um, you know, maybe something that bothered us in the beginning of the treat, retreat that might have just triggered us into aversion. You know, we were, since our, you know, mindfulness and concentration was kicked up probably from the very beginning, 
we experienced, you know, aversive things a lot more strongly than usual, right? And we would just, you know, have a very strong reactive response to it. But, you know, as we are moving down uh, in the strength of all of our Brahma Viharas in the week, um, we get a sense of equanimity about those things now. I'm sure many of you have felt that, the same thing that bothered you, you know, as, um, I don't know who it was, Temple or Sally, that t- I think it was Temple who talked about the cl- stirring of the tea with the um, spoon, right? <laughs> you know, small things like that would just drive us crazy. And, you know, now with some equanimity, it's like, yes, that might feel unpleasant, but, you know, that's how the world is. The world is filled with things that are unpleasant. I think that's the first noble truth. (laughs) So we surrender to the world as it is, and that's an aspect of equanimity. We don't, you know, things don't have to be different for us to be okay. And that's, you know, how we understand it as a refuge, that we're able to really accept the way things are. So equanimity as samadhi and equanimity as a brahma-vihara. And then, so the second form of equanimity as um, a brahma-vihara is sometimes equated to grandmotherly love. I'm sure there's some grandmothers in the room. I know a few. (laughs) And um, it said that uh, grandmothers clearly love their grandchildren, but thanks to their experience with their own children, they're less likely to be caught up in the drama of they should be doing this and not that. So grandmothers are good sources of equanimity. So then the equanimity, the third type of equanimity is the equanimity of the third and fourth jhana of, um, you know, very concentrated mental states. So this is what it says about uh, jhana in the Mahasaka Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. With the fading of rapture, I remain equanimous, mindful and alert, and sense sense pleasure with the body. I enter and remain in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, equanimous and mindful, he has a pleasant abiding. But the pleasant feeling that arose in this way did not invade my mind or remain. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, I entered and remained in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. The jhana of equanimity, the fourth jhana. I read that in the Parinibbana Sutta, you know, the sutta of when the Buddha died, while he was dying, he went from the first to the eighth jhana and back down again. And then while he was actively uh, dying, he rested in the fourth jhana of equanimity. So that must be a pretty, excuse my language, badass place. (laughs) The fourth jhana of equanimity. 
So, uh, and they say that in the fourth jhana, you're able to incline your mind to uh, recollection of past, past lives. You're able to see very clearly the appearance and disappearance of things, of beings. You're able to see very clearly the nature of suffering and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And you're able to see very clearly uh, the three uh, characteristics of reality. And in that same sutta, it said that the Buddha, when he was teaching the Dhamma, he was always in the fourth jhana. That's interesting. So he was blissed out. Well, no, he wasn't. He was actually neither pleasant nor in pain, just in a solid sense of everything is okay. I know this one thing that um, when the um, when the monks, you know, during the Buddhist time, when the monks were gossiping or doing something inappropriate, he would walk over to them and say, what are you doing? Why don't you just go rest in jhana? <laughs> that was, you know, what his advice was for them to uh, get away from unskillful behavior. So I want to read this quote by Tenzing Palmo. Let me find it. Oh, here it is. Wisdom is all about understanding the underlying spacious and empty quality of the person and of all experienced phenomena. To attain this quality of deep insight, we must have a mind that is quiet and malleable. Achieving such a state of mind requires that we first develop the ability to regulate our body and speech so as to cause no conflict. So this is one aspect of equanimity, to regulate ourselves, to have the awareness of what's happening in this moment. And it actually also um, speaks to an element of equanimity as related to kama, which I'll talk about in a second. So true equanimity, you know, we're uh, working with all of the Brahma Vitaras this week of saying the phrases over and over, and um, all of the four Brahma Viharas are, are um, mental factors or mental states. You know, according to Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, there's only 52 things that could be happening in your heart and mind at any time. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And um, equanimity is one of the states. In fact, I think it's last on the list also of the 52 mental factors. And it says here... Um, True equanimity is able to meet all of the severe, severe tests and to regulate its strength from sources within. So once you have a very strong <clears throat> mental factor of equanimity, you know, we still practice it, but when you need equanimity, something in what's happening in the present moment, the causes and conditions in the present moment will arise. Equanimity will arise to be our refuge in that moment. That's how all the wholesome qual qualities of mind work, is that when we've let go of habitual reacting to the world of, by you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, when we have um, attenuated those mental factors in us and strengthened the wholesome qualities, the Brahma Viharas and equanimity, the paramis, 
those arise just based on the causes and conditions of what's needed in the moment. That's what we're all doing here. I think, um, actually I've been looking at um, Rick Hansen's website lately. We're doing self-directed neuroplasticity trainings. (laughs) There is a neuroscience term for it. Self-directed neuroplasticity. So it's said though that uh, for this power of equanimity, for it to be really strong, it has to be rooted in insight. I love that. It has to be rooted in insight. So we can say it over and over again, and that's wonderful. And that is building the strength of it. But it also has to be uh, from us seeing clearly you know, what's happening in the world or how things really work, how causes and conditions come together for something to arise. And uh, towards this sense of insight, it said that there are two ways, the sutta say that there are two ways to be well-informed or two ways, uh, two ways of having wisdom. There's two kinds of sutta or knowledge. Uh, they are agama sutta and ad- adigama sutta. And I love this because I think this is so central to what we're doing here. I always say that this is the two knowledge systems that we have. It's the conceptual knowledge system that, you know, thinks and counts and puts words on experiences. And then the other one, the Adigama Sutta or knowledge system is our knowledge system of intuitive awareness where insight comes from. And I like to say that... Mindfulness is the data collection system for uh, intuitive awareness. All we need to do is see uh, with clear mindfulness. You know, we don't need to think about it or even name it. If we're really connected, if we have some strength to our mindfulness, we just need to watch what's happening. And that, uh, the, that data, I guess you'd call it, that data really um, supports... Uh, insight arising. That data goes to our intuitive awareness and gets mashed up and insight arises. So the Agama Sutta or our conceptual knowledge relates to acquiring information about the words of the Buddha. Um, Vicissitudes are common to one and all and nobody can avoid them. That's, you know, that is a uh, conceptual knowledge of the suttas is to, you know, conceptually we can surrender to, yes, here is something unpleasant happening. Of course it's happening, you know, I'm a human living on this realm. So we, you know, can have a reflection about it that might attenuate, you know, the suffering if we realize that, uh, you know, this is just the way things are by our um, conceptual knowledge. You know, it's the finger pointing at the moon. But then we can also have the other kind of deep realization, the Adigama Sutta, which is deep realization of what's happening. And with that, you know, when we see the pain arising through insight, we tend to, you know, understand more deeply the first noble truth. You know, we see that this is absolutely how the world works. As the Buddha said about the vicissitudes, this is the world. We, uh, we have realizations 
and acquisitions of information are necessary, they point the finger at what the truth is, but our deep realization is actually a wordless insight that really kind of uh, allows us to hold more deeply and to know, you know, it attenuates suffering really. It attenuates suffering to have deep insights. So what is the nature of that insight? You know, what do we know through insight? And, you know, one really important thing that we know is the three characteristics of reality. Um, Personally, I love to do pretty frequent reflections of that. Not perfect, not permanent, not personal. Those can be so helpful. Not perfect, not permanent, not personal. Another element of um, insight or clear awareness without any... Yeah, one uh, element of insight and um, maybe intuitive awareness is that it's free from aversion and greed. So, and they say that aversion and greed, you know, we can have a lot of aversion and aversion and greed with conceptual understanding, it's still there. And aversion and greed are a perceptual, or a frame over our perceptions. So we never really see clearly what's happening in the moment if we have aversion or greed in the mind. So that's one reason we want to uproot them or attenuate them, because we really never know what the most appropriate thing to do in the moment is with aversion and greed present. Another deep understanding that we come to uh, when we have an insight about equanimity is that the various experiences we go through are due to our kama, are due to karma. I love the way uh, Anushka talked about that (laughs) in her... um, car wash of the mind, of the mind and heart, that we're going through the car wash and we might not not even remember if we got the, you know, deluxe or the super deluxe or the extra super deluxe. But all of, you know, the choices of any of those or whatever is happening in this moment is due to our past kama, you know. And we can surrender to that and it, totally fuels our desire to be as um, non-harming to ourselves and others in this moment. It provides us with a very deep sense of uh, intention, of wanting to strengthen the intention of non-harming. Another aspect of kama is that whether we like it or not, We are the inalienable owners of our deeds. As soon as we perform any action, our control over it is lost. uh, Its impact remains forever within us or until we work out what the strength of that intention was. And it becomes our heritage. It's interesting to think, I know the idea of kama is pretty controversial. And um, I've had 
interesting dealings with it as a person who within our society has a, f- a social location which is um, can be highly marginalized. I remember one of my teachers said to me, you know, Bonnie, one day you're going to understand why you were born a minority. And actually, I've come to an interesting perspective on that. I think being born a person of color and actually a woman of color, because women definitely are in the marginalized category, is actually to my uh, great benefit. We are so lucky we were born women and people of color because uh, in our social locations, we know we walk in more than one world. We see that the world that we construct with our communities, you know, our sanghas of women, our people of color, you know, we can feel a safety there and know that the values and perspectives are very different than the mainstream values and perspectives that we need to embrace and embody when we're walking in that world, right? We know that we live in more than one world. This is true too of people uh, who are uniquely abled. I think this is very true of people who are uniquely abled and you know aren't necessarily subsumed within our ableist cultural norm. And um, so, you know, what we can be aware of is just how socially constructed that is. We realize that that's not, uh, you know, that that's empty of inherent existence just as the predominant, um, the predominant culture and values are, that it's constructed and that it changes. But there are some of our beloved relatives who, you know, don't understand that a normative, you know, white, heterosexual, uh, landed, moneyed, um, um, male worldview, that is so normal everywhere, they don't even realize that that's a construction. So they are at, there's a term for it, epistemic disadvantage, right? because they can't see that it's a construction. But those of us who have to walk in multiple worlds, we are so lucky because we see that. So I think being born a woman of color in a pretty poor background was my incredible good comma. (laughs) Yeah, the other reflection is sometimes, you know, in comma, it's like, what do we want that the other group has, and if it's like an insatiable um, craving for wealth, I don't want that. <laughs> that would not be helpful to me. Or just the actions that are affiliated with that. Wow, there's a lot of karma associated with that. Even though I have my own little concepts about karma, karma is one of the imponderables. In the Asantita Sutta, the Buddha talks about four imponderables. Uh, And they are uh, thinking about the range of powers of a Buddha. And I'll think we were to think, what can a Buddha do? (laughs) What kind of special powers do they have? The second imponderable is the range of powers obtained while absorbed in jhana. You know, if you're able to reach jhanic states 
which I personally believe are states of anatta, of not-self, letting go of clinging or grasping. Jhana is an anatta state. But to know what's going on or the powers obtained through jhana is also an imponderable. And then the third imponderable is kama, the precise workings out of the results of kama. Or for me to even think about why, you know, what was my kama of being, being born in the social location that I am. And then uh, the fourth imponderable is trying to figure out why we were born or what the, you know, what the meaning of the cosmos are or what is the meaning of life. So all four of those are imponderables and that they bring madness and vexation to anyone who thinks about them. (laughs) So if you're going down that road of thinking about any one of those things, particularly thinking thinking about getting a correct answer to any of those things, you're probably headed toward madness and vexation. So you probably want to stay away from those. So um, I want to read some quotes here. I love some of these quotes. This is a um, little quote from Hogan Bayes, written in appreciation of his Zen teacher. In the presence of Sangha, in the light of Dhamma, in oneness with Buddha, may my path to complete enlightenment benefit everyone. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is a cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whomever I encounter, I, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is, is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. And truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dhamma interest gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. So whatever is happening in this moment, this is what I choose. This is what I surrender to. This is the product of kama from the past, maybe even past lives. And it couldn't be any other way. It couldn't be any other way. But the only control we have over the future of how things are going to unfold is the quality of our mind right now. 
we are watering the seeds of our future manifestations, we are choosing what car wash we want right now. (laughs) So that's why being present is so important. It is so important. So what are some of the equanimity phrases that we have? I actually missed out on the uh, equanimity meditation today that I think Temple did. Did Temple do it? I'm sure they were brilliant because he's pretty brilliant and funny. I think he's a stand-up Dhamma comic. (laughs) He makes us happy. So these are Jack Kornfield in his book, A Wise Heart. He has some suggestions for uh, equanimity. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open and balanced and peaceful. And then there is some suggested equanimity phrases from Sharon Salzberg. And these are pretty classic, I think, probably ones that you might have done today. All beings are the owners of their kama. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. May we all accept things just as they are. May we be undisturbed by the coming and going of events. I care for you but cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. I care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. I think those Phrases and just doing all of the Brahma Viharas, what it does is it puts putty in all those neuro pathways of just no, noticing, you know, all of the um, suffering around us. It puts putty in there and creates new pathways for um, the natural arising of the divine abodes of the Brahma Viharas. So there's actually a relationship between the four divine abodes that we are practicing. In this metta retreat, there's a relationship between loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. They say that uh, equanimity is rooted in insight and is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. So equanimity is what keeps the three defined states in balance. It's really an incredibly high spiritual state. And if I have time, I'll talk a little bit about that. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness. So loving kindness plays a big part in true equanimity. It provides it its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. You know, we might think in equanimity that we're just sitting back and not, you know, uh, working in the world. We're not working to 
relieve the suffering of others or we're not, um, you know, taken aback by just the incredible uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, which I am languaging as capitalism, colonialism, and patriarchy, (laughs) that we, you know, would sit back and not, you know, be impacted by that or not want to do something about it. But loving kindness imparts um, selflessness, but also a fervor to our equanimity. Um, you know, there's wrathful equanimity. But, you know, I think it, um, it has wisdom with it. It really understands, you know, how things arise and pass away. Equanimity gives to loving kindness and even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows loving kindness with the great virtue of patience. Patience. We know that patience is also a really important parami. It was one of those paramis I did a Dharma talk about because I felt like it wasn't one of my strongest ones. So I wanted to investigate that. So patience is an important dimension of equanimity. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference. So compassion, just the caring of others, is present in equanimity equanimity, and prevents the um, near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference. And it also uh, keeps it from selfish isolation. I'm sure all of us are feeling that right now with what's happening maybe in the larger social arena. You know, I've talked to many people who just can't listen to NPR anymore. It's like we have to pull back and, you know, can't be exposed to so much unwholesome things happening. So compassion helps equanimity to enter again and again in the battle of the world by hardening and strengthening itself. Compassion is an important part of equanimity. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness. I love that. You know, we can act with great compassion to try to alleviate suffering, but we can let go of being attached to what the outcome of that is. We can work diligently and with love and compassion to alleviate suffering, but just step back and say, however this turns out, you know, I'm bringing my energy and effort and equanimity to it. So I want to have, uh, I have some other equanimity quotes that I would like to share that are so beautiful. Here's uh, one from Sharon Salzberg. In order to know the truth of interconnectedness, we need to look at the world with what theologian Howard Thurman calls quiet eyes, AKA equanimity. It might be through silent meditation that we see the hidden patterns of connection that make up our inner life. 
It might be through pausing long enough to realize where a plate of spaghetti comes from. However we do it, softly receiving reality with quiet eyes rather than pinpointing objects and events as separate and distinct and distinct opens up our view instead of enclosing it with predetermined boundaries. We take in what is appearing before reactions and conclusions get fixed. When we relax into this mode of perception, a different perspective on reality becomes available to us. I think that speaks to, you know, telling our thinking conceptual mind, I love you, Bonnie, thinking mind, you are so smart. But, you know, I'm going to hang out with you Thursday afternoon, so you need to get lost for a while. You know, just asking that thinking part of ourselves to take a little vacation. Here's a quote about equanimity from the Buddha. Whose mind is like rock, steady, unmoved, dispassionate for things that spark passion, unangered by things that spark anger, when one's mind is developed like this, from where can there come suffering and stress? From where can there come suffering and stress? I like this uh, quote by Jeff Foster about humility as an aspect of equanimity. I find truth in anything anyone ever says about me, so nobody can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened, the worst being in the world, I can find all of it. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It is the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So next time you get triggered by someone saying to you, someone says to, by what someone says to you or about you, ask yourself this, what am I defending? This inquiry is the key to unimaginable peace. Deep gratitude to anyone who has ever given me any kind of feedback. I just want to say a few words about, you know, we know that equanimity is the um, fourth Brahmavihara, and it pays, plays an important role in development of um, the perfection of the other three paramis. It's also, like I said, the last of the, um, I mean, uh, the Brahmaviharas, it's the fourth Brahmavihara. And it plays a part in, you know, perfecting the other three Brahmaviharas. And it's a parami. And I love the idea that the paramis are the boats that let us cross the floods of life. The paramis and the Brahmaviharas are the vehicles for crossing the vicissitudes. 
they are our true refuge. You know, we really need to develop them because that's where we need to go to. In order to have developed the karma for, you know, beautiful things and, you know, lack of suffering to happen in the future. Um, Equanimity is also one of the seven factors of awakening. And um, we know that that's part of the fourth, fourth foundation of mindfulness. Our wonderful teacher, the Venerable Analeyo, talks about, you know, hanging out in the seven factors of awakening as, you know, the last place we go before we get on the progress of insight to some really big insights and awakening. And that is the last of the calming factors, right? It is one of the calming factors of the seven factors of awakening. It's also one of the five spiritual faculties, which is thought to also... um, to also um, be the qualities that we need to have in order to continue to do the practice. And uh, of course, it's the fourth uh, jhanic factor is the jhanic factor of equanimity. And in the progress of insight, that's interesting. So the progress of insight, many of you probably know, is... um, was written in the Vasudhi Manga. It's like the steps of awakening. There's a very specific path of what uh, deep, deep insight and awakening looks like. And right before we get a glimpse of, you know, the unconditioned, equanimity arises, uh, allowing us to be absolutely fine with whatever comes next. You know, that sense of deep equanimity is right before a glimpse of the unconditioned. It's said that um, equanimity transforms delusion or that, you know, we have, we know each of us what our three personality types are or which one of the three uh, kalesas is our own personal um, personality type. I'm sure many of you have thought about this before, but just a brief reflection. Are you a greedy type? You know, I think Sharon Salzberg talks about walking into a room and looking around and seeing exactly what you want. I want that bed. I want to sit on that cushion. I want to sit in that corner. And then the aversive type will walk into a room and say, oh my gosh, I hate that Zafu. I hate that Zavutan. I'm not sitting in that corner. They see everything that they don't like. And then there's the delusion type, which I pride myself on being a delusive type. (laughs) I walk in and say, what's happening? What are we supposed to do? (laughs) So you can all do some reflections on which type of those you are. And they say that, um, you know, those kalesis or torments of the mind turn into positive qualities when they're transformed. The greedy type transforms itself into faith. Just a deep abiding awe. I've seen a lot of people with faith on the interviews. A deep abiding awe, like, wow, this practice rocks, man. It is so interesting and awesome. That's faith. And aversion turns into uh, discriminating wisdom or panya. I can see that. You know, the sense of knowing the dimensions of things and understanding deeply aversion turns into panya or wisdom. And us deluded types, when you know we have uh, strong transformations, delusion turns into equanimity. 
I think I'll close just reciting. Let's all start back into our meditation. And I will recite the five subjects for frequent recollection, which are also part of a contemplation of equanimity. This is a finger pointing at the moon. But it inclines, it inclines our wisdom towards these insights. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So let's have a half an hour of walking meditation and we'll come back and do some chanting and some more practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.